four years ago today at 9.45 in the morning, a fellow employee came running into my office in tears saying that a plane had flown into one of the world towers and that jet fuel and debris and bodies were raining on the street below. And as the day unfolded, the horror unfolded. So much so that they just kept playing that tape over and over and over again. And I'm not sure where the horror started or the grief set in or those memories. If anything, we bring from them is that um, we will never forget what evil looks like. And so it is by God's grace And it is a wonderful gift that this morning we open up our scriptures and what we read is, let love. Romans 12, verses 9 through 13. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Would you pray with me? Father, may from these scriptures and from my lips flow rivers of living water so that today we might be refreshed. In Jesus' name, amen. The inspiration for the sermon came in the form of a letter that Phoebe and I received a little while ago. It's from friends of ours who are medical missionaries in Africa. They started out, they're much younger than we are, and they started out their career, as it were, in Africa. Uh, They had their children there, and they've labored in a part of Africa that literally translated the name of that town is the end of the road. It is the end of the earth in which they're laboring. And they've gone through many things in the last 10 years. They wrote this prayer letter recently, and I want to share it with you. One of them says, and then pray for us. This week we feel like a real emotional and spiritual low point has set in. Two children died in my hands in the last couple of days. I have heard their hearts' final thumps and felt their last gasping breaths. Meanwhile, Scott has been caught up in the struggle and then the shocking grief of getting our friend, Akali, a diagnosis for the growing mass in his chest, breast cancer, and in this case, a particularly aggressive cell site. Responding to a neighbor's mental illness, pleading with a pregnant student not to run away for an abortion, calling for repentance in a quarreling group of girls, negotiating forgiveness, navigating the bureaucracy. Scott and I are both weary. We aren't the only ones weary on our team. And yet, what does the Lord say? Come to me, all who are weary. And heavy laden. How much of my missionary life have I spent trying to act like Jesus? Teaching and healing, imitating his deeds of mercy and justice. I do not need so much to do what Jesus did, but to be filled with the love of Jesus so completely that his actions then naturally flow out of my life. That kind of love will not leave us weary. Many people break down this book of Romans into two parts. Chapters 1 through 11, they say, is uh, the theological groundwork. And chapters 12 through the end is the practical application. Many of Paul's books seem to fall in these two lines. But I think we need to phrase that distinction just a little differently for the purposes 
of today's sermon. I think we should understand from chapters 1 through 11 in Romans what God looks like. And from chapter 12 on, we should understand what God looks like in us. The last half of Romans, this this uh, distinction between uh, uh, what God looks like and what God looks like in us has been phrased very well by a late, great 20th century uh, philosopher. Uh, sorry, Professor. Uh, Genie from Aladdin's Lamp. <laughs> he said, phenomenal cosmic powers, itty bitty living space. <laughs> That's it. That's Romans. In the next three verses are 13 characteristics of Christ. I do think that we do a great disservice to the first 11 chapters and to the gospel itself if we look at this as a to-do list. For you see, when the refiner, that great smelter of our souls, clears away the dross, and looks into our hearts, he is looking for a reflection. But he is looking for his reflection. He is looking for the reflection of his son in us. Which brings us to the two fundamental points of understanding today's scriptures. Now, before I get into these verses, I would just have to say, as I was preparing this sermon, I was sitting on the front porch and my wife was reading a book and all of a sudden, I looked up and I said, honey, do you realize there are 13 things in these next three verses? She put down her book and looked over her glasses and she said, you're not going to preach on all 13 things, are you? <laughs> so before any of you pass out, get the next two things that I'm going to say. Get it down. Get it well. This is fundamental to this sermon. Number one, the first fundamental thing is our identity. And the second fundamental thing is our view of love. Our identity. I think it's important to start here because our identity is the essence of. It is the culmination of. It is the heart of the gospel. Who we are. It's about dead people being made alive. It is about transformation. So, If you hear anything this morning, anything, hear this. From these scriptures, we are told, and I'm going to give you a few verses just from scripture, from the Lord's word. We are told, in Christ, you are a new creation. In Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. In Christ, you are justified. In Christ, we have received reconciliation. In Christ, we are God's children and heirs. In Christ, We are the righteousness of God. In Christ, we are his body. In Christ, we are holy and blameless and beyond reproach. In Christ, we are partakers of his divine nature. In Christ, we are complete. Why? Why? Why all these things? Glad you asked. There's a few verses that I think help us with our identity and could help us this morning. Second Corinthians states, Jesus Christ is in you. Colossians 3 states, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
from 1 Corinthians 3.16. It says, do you not know that you are a sanctuary of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Do you know that? Do you know that you are a sanctuary of God and God dwells in you? Do you tell yourself that? Do you teach your children that? How often we miss out on the peace and the power and the purpose that comes from knowing who we are. Get this straight and you will see today's sermon. You will see all of Scripture. No, you will see all of creation through new eyes. Know who you are. The second fundamental view is that of love. I think in order to grow in Christ, we must grow in our understanding of love. Love has such a position in all of Scripture that we read over and over again that loving God in our neighbor is that on which the whole of the law and the prophets depend. Paul will actually echo this in the next chapter or the next 12 months, whichever comes sooner. (laughs) If Christ abides in us, then it is only right to conclude that what abides in us, that who we are, is the love of Christ. Now, we can explain and describe this love in many ways. We can give Greek lessons on various types of love. Well, actually, I can't. But we certainly can give many examples of love. But we must never, never define love apart from or divorce this love from redemption. First John, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave up his son for us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave us his son so that we might not perish. First John 3, behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And Ephesians 1 says it extremely well. In love, we have redemption through his blood. One could sum up this truth, the, 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 the Bible, in many ways. If I asked you today, you would probably come up with many good answers as to the summation of scriptures. Um, but I have been asked to preach today. And what I see from scriptures is this. From Adam to the covenant to the desert to the nation of Israel to the incarnation, to the crucifixion, to the ascension, and to the someday when he comes back again, it is all about redemptive love. That is, God drawing his people, God drawing you, God drawing me constantly, faithfully, purposefully to himself. That redemptive love has accomplished our salvation is accomplishing our sanctification, and someday that redemptive love will accomplish our glorification. We have very fancy words in uh, this church to describe that. It's called the Ordo Salutis, the Order of Salvation. Those are very good words. You should learn those words. They are good theological terms. But um, 
what I think we should know is that from election to glorification, because we are the sanctuary of God, in every step there is his redemptive love. Think about election. You think about justification. You think about adoption. You think about sanctification. You think about glorification. In every step of the way, he is out of love, redeeming us to himself. That's why it's all there. It is, redemptive love is who we are and never, never let any sin or any accusation, or any emotion, or any feeling, or any person, or any sermon, or any height, or depth, let never let any power ever tell you differently than that is who you are in Christ by faith. Christ in us, the redemptive love of God in Christ in us, the two fundamental foundations of the next three verses. Due to some grammatical reasons, some commentators see the next three verses as proceeding from the words, let love. But I would say, actually, that the rest of Romans proceeds from let love. That is, let this redemptive love of God that abides in you, that river of living water, consume you, characterize you, be you. So, born of redemptive love, Paul writes, let love be without hypocrisy. The word hypocrisy comes from the Greek word without a mask. Coming from a family of actors, I can appreciate this term. Oh, Dad, I I can't finish my broccoli. My stomach hurts. I'm going to die. (laughs) Many, many times at the dinner table. Other translations here use the word insincere. It is from the Latin word sin sera, meaning without wax. And it comes from the ancient practice of using wax to hide small cracks so that the pottery would look good. Hmm. Using wax to make something look good. Good pottery had a stamp on the bottom that read sin sera, without wax. So you knew that what you were seeing was the genuine article, not something the seller wanted you to see for his personal gain. As for this loving insincerely, Jesus quoting Isaiah said it well. These people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And to put it in words that all of us can grasp, we are not allowed to play pretend with this love. God made this concept clear in Isaiah 1 when he said, New moon and Sabbath and calling of assemblies, I cannot endure. I hate your appointed festivals. They have become a burden to me. Even though you multiply your prayers, I'm not going to listen to them. Wash yourselves. Reprove yourselves. Reprove reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Jesus, uh, talking on these things, said, don't be like the hypocrites who love to stand and pray in the synagogues, to be seen by men. We can have all the elements of our worship just right. We can even have the songs we want. We can have just the right prayers for just the right moment. Why, we can even, as Paul said in Corinthians, give our bodies to be burned and give all our possessions to feed the poor. We can have all knowledge 
and all faith to move mountains. But if we do not express this redemptive love, it means nothing. The deceit and the lust of the flesh are so strong that we can, without a second thought, turn that pure, abiding love that dwells into us into personal gain. I'm full of love. I'm full of worship. I'm full of prayer. I'm full of ministry. Look at me. Look at how I love others. Did I mention look at me? Let me show you the person I want you to think I am. That love that abides in us, in the person of Christ, always gives up self for the sake of the gospel. It is sin, Sarah. Love does not seek its own, so that others might see Christ and glorify the Father. Because we have this treasure in earthen vessels, in vessels of clay, without wax, so that the glory might be God's. Born from redemptive love, Paul then goes on to write, hate what is evil. Paul abruptly, impolitely, interjects this, hate what is evil. In polite society, it's, can't we all just get along? Or, hate is not a family value. Or, certainly, I was never taught about hate in Sunday school class. Or better yet, maybe Paul was just talking about hating those people who fly planes into buildings. Beloved, evil is in here. And evil's in here. If the love that abides in us is redemptive, that is drawing us to God, then evil or sin is that which separates us from God. Isaiah said, for your sins have made a separation between you and God. We have been so acculturated by the world's standards, especially that of love, that we think lightly of sin and much more lightly of its consequences. And certainly we do As I said earlier, reserve the word evil for people who fly planes into buildings. But Scripture does not let us get off that lightly. The gravity of evil, which we must call sin, and the passion we are to embrace against it, pours out of the very act of redemption itself. For it was on the cross... That picture of the love of God, where we see so clearly this hate. Him who knew no sin became sin for us. In a moment when all of that which separated God from his people, past, present, and future, was born in love by the Son, the Father, his own Father, because of what sin is and sin does, poured out his hate on his son. His own father. His own son. Atonement is horrible because sin is horrible. We are called by this verse 
to redemptively hate that which would separate a human from his creator and a child from her father. Born from redemptive love, we are also called to cling to what is good. Paul knew a thing or two about clinging. I cannot help but picture Paul adrift in the Mediterranean after storm clinging to a piece of wood. He treated that wood as if his life depended on it. And so it is with us. Even as there is that which separates us from God, there is also that which draws us to God. But, but what is good? Well, I think the psalmist said it well in Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, for his delight is in the law of the Lord. In his teachings, he meditates day and night, and he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit. In due season, Jesus said, abide in me. In life, there is that in which we blossom, we grow, we thrive. Use your spiritual eyes to see these things. Cling to that. Cling to it physically. Cling to it emotionally. Cling to it spiritually. If there is someone or something that draws you to the Father by drawing you to Christ, cling to it passionately as if your life Depended on it. I suppose right about now I should talk about the means of grace. It would be good and appropriate. But we do that here often and we do it well. And I think Paul in a broader sense was talking about our daily momentary walk. Like in Paul's day, one does not have to look far to see that all the world lies under the power of the evil one. He simply had to walk through Corinth. We simply have to pick up a newspaper It is in this world that we have been asked to swim. So, as the psalmist said, by faith, choose daily where you walk, where you stand, and where you sit. Choose it as if your life depended on it. Out of redemptive love, Paul then says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. One of the marks that we belong to Christ is that we love one another. Another mark that we belong to Christ is that we are devoted. In John 13, 1, we read, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. He was devoted. First John sums up our identity this way. If we love one another, God abides in us. And the one who does not love his brother, the love of God, God is, excuse me. If we love one another, God abides in us. And the one who does not love his brother is not of God. This is God's way of saying two things. The first is, we don't get to pick. My mother-in-law's new pastor told the story of one day when he went to McDonald's. And uh, at McDonald's, uh, the person greeted him and said, uh, Hello, welcome to McDonald's. And then the person recognized him as his pastor. He said, Oh, pastor, praise the Lord. It's good to see you here. How can I help you? (laughs) Pastor Robertson then went on to... Remember the day that that man came into the church months before. That day, the man pulled the pastor aside and said, uh, can, can we talk? Um, and the pastor said, OK. And he said, is it all right if I'm here? Puzzled, the pastor asked him to go on. Well, he said, does your church welcome drug addicts? I mean, I'm a believer and I come out of a drug, drug culture and... I'm doing my best. But if it would make your people uncomfortable, 
I can go somewhere else. At which time the pastor, without pointing, said, take a look. Look, out here we have a lot of addicts. Really? That's great, he said. (laughs) Yes, you see over here, there's one who's addicted to sports. Over there, one's addicted to clothes. Over here, there's a few who are addicted to pornography. Over here, somebody's addicted to alcohol. Over there, somebody's addicted to shopping. Now, how do you feel? I feel right at home, said the man. As the pastor and his family drove away from the McDonald's, one of his children said to him, Dad, why was that man smiling so much? To which Pastor Robertson replied, He has known the love of Christ, and God's people have convinced him of it. It is not a reflection of Christ that we magnanimously extend love to those who look like us, live like us, talk like us, vote like us, chew like us. It is not this love that we're talking about. Love starts at home. That's why Paul used the word brotherly. Love starts at home. And today, if you're here in Christ, I would say to you, welcome home. But conversely, the second point that was being pointed out here is brotherly love means that we don't have the option to be strangers. If you're here today because you think Christianity is about a quiet time in one hour and 36 minutes on a Sunday morning, I say to you, from authority of these scriptures, take care of your souls. You cannot say you love God and treat his people like strangers. Which leads Paul to the next. Give preference to one another in honor. I love this part. Actually, it was brought up in Sunday school. I don't know if. You know that. I think Jeff said something like, we don't say wow enough. love this part because this is what I call the gasp clause. If ever redemptive love and identity met, it's right here. We are fond of quoting C.S. Lewis or somebody like that. I can't remember, but he gets quoted a lot in here. And they say, we say something like, he said, if we ever were to see some of the people we meet in their glorified states, we would be tempted to fall down and worship them. I'm sure I'll be corrected after the service. I think he only got it part right. Remember, phenomenal cosmic powers, itty bitty living space. First Corinthians asks us all sitting here, Do you not recognize that Christ is in you? (gasps) When you walk into the room, there should be an audible gasp from my lips. Through the eyes of faith, through the eyes of faith, I would know that he is in you. And it would be my greatest privilege and calling to express your worth, to give preference to you. And in word and in deed, because of him who lives in you, to honor you. 
not lagging behind in diligence. If you are examined by the elders for membership, one of them will ask, how are you taking care of your soul? That question comes from Moses. And the exact quote is this from Deuteronomy 4.10. Only keep your souls diligently, lest you forget. And the things that you have learned depart from your heart. Early in the summer, we planted a garden. We took a plot of ground that had been the garden and it had been overgrown by weeds, had a lot of rocks in it. And night after night, we would be out there digging and laboring and moaning and digging and laboring. Until finally, we had this plot turned over and we put in fresh new topsoil and it was beautiful. We planted our seeds and the soil produced beautiful plants. As a matter of fact, we grew like 11 foot tall sunflowers. I mean, you should drive by just to see our sunflowers. It was it was unbelievable. However, this past summer, we had other things to do than weed. Uh, but we did harvest some good food. And recently, I looked out our kitchen window and found that the whole garden is covered in weeds. Every plant is covered by weeds. As a matter of fact, there's this one plant that is a vine. And this vine has grown and it's swirled around all the plants. It has gone and it's gone onto the fence that we have surrounding the garden. It's grown all over the fence. It has left. The garden. And it has gone to a tree. It has grown up the tree and out the branches. I'm standing here looking out the window. This weed is blooming in the tree. It's blooming in the tree. A weed. There's a very true saying that goes, For the weeds to prosper, the gardener need only leave the garden alone. Amen. Keep your souls with diligence, my friends. You never know what might grow there. Fervent in spirit. Translated, this means seething in the spirit or boiling in the spirit or perhaps just on fire. I love watching a fire. My wife will tell you this. I love the crackle, the warmth, the life. Maybe you do too. Sometimes... Here, where it says fervent spirit, though, I think we do misunderstand spirit and spirit's role in us. We tend to ask the Lord, Lord, please fill us with the Holy Spirit, not quite grasping that we are full of the Holy Spirit. Uh, And as far as his role in us is concerned, we usually think that if we are feeling good emotionally, the spirit is doing his job. Kind of like it's God's own little Dr. Phil in us. However... The role of the Spirit is, get this, the role of the Spirit is to bring God's presence to bear in our lives. And since we know that God's presence in Scripture has been noted by fire, Moses and the burning bush, the burning pill of fire, the burning chariots, the refiner's fire, the tongues of fire, then I think it's fair to come to the conclusion that a person who is fervent in spirit is simply one who is on fire. Lane Hefner tells the story of a pastor friend of his that went to a very small country church. When asked by Lane, why do you think you can make a difference? The pastor simply replied, I am going to let the Lord set me on fire and you can come and watch me burn. I love watching a fire, don't you? Serving the Lord. I think 
For this section, one of the more compelling passages of scriptures that opens our eyes to this theme is found in Matthew 20. I'm going to abbreviate it a lot. But starting in Matthew 20, in ver- uh, chapter 20, verse 20, we read how the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, came to Jesus bowing down and making a request of Jesus. Command in your kingdom that these two sons of mine can sit on your throne, one on your right and one on your left. The Lord in his response said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. And so as they were going out, a multitude followed Jesus. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the multitude sternly told them to be quiet. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called to them and said, what do you wish me for me to do to you? For you. And they said to him, Lord. We want our eyes opened and moved with compassion. Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they received their sight. And now in my version, I'm going to add six words right here. You might not have this in your version. And immediately they received their sight. And the six words are, and because of his redemptive love. And then scriptures go on to state, they followed him. Bordering this pronouncement in the center of this section that Christ is the servant, on the one side was a mother promoting her son's place in Christ's kingdom. On the other side was a crowd promoting their place in Christ's presence. Serving the Lord, friends, is an awesome topic, and I'm not going to do it justice here, but I want to boil it down to one phrase. It's not about me. Serving the Lord is about attending to his heart, and his heart is about redemptive love. Even as you did it to the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Rejoicing in hope. In his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Eugene Peterson uh, is writing about the Psalms, which are the songs of ascent. There's 6, 9, 10, 12. There's a lot of them. He says anyway in his book, he says, Dourness is not a sacred attribute. (laughs) I smiled when I read that. In Psalm 126, one of these psalms of sense, we read uh, the psalms that were sung by God's people as they ascended to Jerusalem. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were as those who dream. Then our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. And in quoting Peterson, next, Joy is the outpouring of that which cannot be contained. Joy is nurtured by memory and experience and anticipation. And joy is the product of abundance. The early Christians knew this well. There it was found in their greeting. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Echoing in their greeting was the joy of their security. Because of redemption accomplished. Their joy in the anticipation of his return. And their joy in the death that gave them abundant life. Don't be mistaken. These were some of the most persecuted of God's children. Whose rejoicing came from an abundance not of this world. To know who you are because of Christ in you. To know who you are because of Christ in you. 
is to dream and to laugh and to sing and to dance. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Persevering in tribulation, a precious part of faith is seeing what is true. A precious part of faith is seeing what is true. Perseverance is an act of faith and it is a sure sign of it. For when what we see and sense and feel conspires against us and against our security, against our comfort, even against our life, it is only by faith that we can see beyond these tribulations to what is true. Dallas Willard, in A Divine Conspiracy, wrote this. Standing in the kingdom, we make responsible decisions in love with assurance that how things turn out for us does not really matter that much because in any case... We are in the kingdom of the heavens. In that kingdom, nothing can happen to us that is the end of the world. We can be vulnerable because simply, in the end, we are invulnerable. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation. I don't think you or I, and I might be out of order here, at least I know that I have not experienced tribulation in the traditional sense that the word has been used. I nor my family have ever suffered from being attacked for the gospel's sake. I can't remember losing comfort or security for the sake of Christ. In many ways, it is difficult for me to preach this particular part of the sermon. But perhaps when Anne Marie returns from her mission trip, she will share with us what persevering in tribulation really looks like. I have, however, had my faith attacked. Remember that the war that brings tribulation is one that is waged by spiritual forces of wickedness, by powers and world forces of darkness. That struggle or tribulation is very real. And I can tell you, perseverance in those times does not come about because it's on my Christian to-do list comes about because I know, I see that the testimony of the one who lives in me is sure. In this world, you will have trouble. But take care. I have overcome the world. In him, he and me, I am invulnerable. Devoted to prayer. Out of redemptive love, Paul writes, be devoted to prayer. Our prayers tell us what we think about Christ. We talk to the ones we love about what we love. You cannot be a friend of my son's without hearing in about 15 seconds about PS2. And I assure you that is not public school number two. You cannot be a friend of my daughter's without knowing that one of God's greatest, if not the greatest creation of God is a horse. And you cannot be a friend of my other daughter's without her quietly, softly, unconsciously doing an Irish jig in your presence. We communicate to the ones we love about what we love. We pray because prayer is love. We pray because prayer is power. Because you have prayed is oft repeated in scriptures and is stressed over and over again as a prerequisite for the release and the experience of God's power. 
Just ask Peter. Or just ask Hezekiah. We pray because prayer is humility. As MacDonald put it, uh, that is, uh, excuse me, John MacArthur put it, it is the impotent coming to the feet of the omnipotent. And we pray because prayer is honor. And it's off quoted here from Revelation 5. We see that in prayer we ascend. We ascend with all the saints that have gone, gone before to the throne of God. And we say, worthy is the Lamb. Beloved, the more we know that worthy is the Lamb, the more we will know and be devoted to prayer because our prayer life tells us what we think about Christ. Contributing to the needs of the saints. If there is any substantial, concrete, visible validation of the presence of our Lord in us, it is this. I recently read, and I'll try and hurry. I know I'm running late and I apologize. I, I recently read in the World Magazine about a local church that was growing so fast that they needed a new sanctuary to house everybody. So they took up a great offering and had the, were ready to pay for the sanctuary when it, where some people came in who were on fire for the Lord. And they told them about this need. And so let it be known today that this congregation does not have a new sanctuary. But they own 10,000 acres of land in Africa. And in those 10,000 acres, God's needy people come and they plow and they share and they learn of God and they grow. And some of those people from those 10,000 acres are now going out and being missionaries because somebody contributed to their needs. I love watching fires. As I was writing this part of the Sermon, a verse kept coming to my mind. I couldn't figure it out. It's the verse that I've often pondered from Philippians 3.10, that I might know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. And I could never quite get that conformed to his death part. And although I am sure there are some wonderful interpretations of it, I see now, through the needs of the saints, A little better. For by his death for us, to meet our needs, he showed that he would hold on to nothing. Nothing. Not even his life. And I am asked by this very same one who abides in me to conform to this death. In an era when we are busy trading up, protecting our 401ks, or simply shopping. What is it that I hold on to? What is it that I will not give up? What is it that I will not do for the sake of one of you, his brothers? Will people look at me? Will they look at you and see how we give up and what we give up and say, there goes living proof of the gospel. I can't leave this section about contributing to the needs of the saints without talking about current events. When the events down south happened, I was mesmerized on the TV and I was sad. But nothing really prepared me for an email that we got from the church. It was an email from the presbytery we have down there. And it was just full of letters from brothers and sisters who lost everything. From churches who lost everything. I don't know if that email was sent out to everybody in this church, but whoever sent that email out, I would ask you this week, 
Would you please resend that email out to everybody in this church? And as you read of these brothers and sisters in need, may the grace of God be on you that was on the Macedonians. And maybe it be said of the people of Potomac Hills that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. May that grace be on us. And finally, practicing hospitality. When I was hungry, you fed me. And when I was a stranger, you invited me in. Paul now mentions the twin sister to contributing to the needs of the saints. And although hospitality mirrors contributing in many ways, I, I think it is mentioned here distinctly because, in essence, hospitality is a charity of the soul that opens the door of our spirits and invites people in. In almost every sermon, I quote Emily Dickinson. I assure you, I have probably read only three lines of her poetry, being the reader I am. But my wife did a one-woman show based on her life, and I was mesmerized by that show. But I can only remember one line. And the line goes like this. The soul selects her own society and then shuts the door. To my shame, it is way too easy for me to shut the door. I wonder how many of these, my brothers, I've just not invited in. Because the door the Lord opened, I too often shut We're so busy. We've got our priorities. We've got our to-do lists. Don't shut the door. Yet I have hope. I have hope because I cannot think about hospitality, this charity of the soul, without thinking of that great day of redemption. Do you know what it will be? Do you remember? Remember what scripture says that great day of redemption will be? It will be a banquet. God will say to you and God will say to me, come in, sit, dine, feast at my table. Oh, by the way, here's a new white robe. My son bought it for you with his own blood so that you could be my child. Come, sit, dine, and eat. And forever, in the presence of the one who redemptively loved me and gave himself up for me, I will sit. Because today I know he is in me.
And so the sermon ends. In these three verses, we are reminded in 13 ways of what our Lord looks like in us. Now, if you look in the mirror and these things don't look like you, it's not because you don't try hard enough. If when the Lord, the refiner, looks into your soul and he doesn't see himself, it's not because you haven't accomplished your to-do list for Christ. If these things don't characterize you and me, it's because we've displaced him as Lord of our lives. So I'm going to end the sermon with Jesus' words to you. Come to me. Come to me. And out of you will flow rivers of living water.